people still hide their fertility journey from people. They still don't talk about it openly because there's still very much views and opinions that are given to people based around that, often well-thinking and, you know, well-meant and, you know, through an air of kindness there. But sometimes because that whole emotional piece from being told, you know, which we still have in schools that you can get pregnant really easily, it doesn't catch up to the fact that when you're trying in your 30s and late 30s, but actually, in most cases, if people aren't approaching this as if they were a project manager in terms of their life, their lifestyle, their health, looking at their genes and how they can actually improve the way their hormones are working, it does generally become one of those situations where they can add to that statistics themselves. Welcome to Your Body's Way a podcast for all of you health-conscious humans out there who want to nourish, move, and take care of your body your way. Not the diet book's way or even my way. Your journey to find your body's way through all of the noise and nonsense starts right here, where I'll be presenting and breaking down all of the current popular health practices so you can make intelligent choices that work for you and you alone. You know what they say, if the shoe fits, so I encourage you to take on what sounds tempting and to reject what doesn't. So let's dive into your journey to becoming the person you know you can be. Hi everybody, welcome back to Your Body's Way. I'm going to introduce you to the incredible Angela Heap today. She is a fertility nutritionist who really knows her stuff on this topic. This topic is so, so important because it is so loaded with intense emotion. There's often a time constraint um, that we're dealing with here when it comes to trying to get pregnant. So emotions are so high and we just want to get pregnant when we want to get pregnant and when we don't it can be a real shocker and it can be really tough for us. So Angela goes into why it's important that you work with a professional to get some guidance because as Angela says Dr Google it can be helpful for some things but definitely not helpful in others and when you're trying to figure out why you're not conceiving as quickly as you thought Dr Google probably isn't the best person to ask and it's best that you get some professional help but we talk about all sorts of things that can affect your fertility like your food lifestyle even mold in the home which is an incredible part that we talk about at the end but one thing I want you to come away with is if you're struggling to get pregnant or if you're concerned about your fertility you do have the power in your hands to improve your situation so I want to empower you and I want you to know that you can make a change and you can have success soon so Without further ado, please, please, please enjoy this conversation with Angela. So welcome, Angela. It's so good to see you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I can't wait to dive into today's topic, which is all things fertility. So thank thank you you for inviting me tomorrow. I really appreciate you taking some time out and us to have have a chat about fertility and go into a bit more depth. 
Yes, likewise. Um, do you know what this topic? I was really excited to talk to you today about it because it's such a it's such a powerful topic and it's such a sensitive topic for so many people, so many couples. Um, and it's it it really is something that should be discussed. It's really important. And um, I know the information that you have and all of the knowledge that you've gained with your clients is going to be so useful for people who are listening to this right now and for anyone who is thinking about getting pregnant soon or maybe struggling so I think it's just such an important conversation and there's just so much to talk about um I have a list of questions which you've seen but I've actually added to them this morning because I'm just in the car this morning I was just like Oh my god! I really need to know about this as well. I need to know about that. So um, I'll I'll try and I won't try and be, I won't keep you for too long. Um, feel free to cut me off whenever you want. But um, there's a lot to go through. Basically, like I really- oh, don't worry. It's it's a, it's a such an important and you know emotive topic because you know a lot of people who are in couples they want to have children and if they do, they start researching it and then if they don't. Um, you know get pregnant straight away which we're all led to believe at school if you sit next to a boy if you're not on the pill then you're going to get pregnant it becomes a huge shock and I think a lot of my clients go through that grieving process when they start coming to me because they've actually been told for most of their life that it's actually something that can happen so easily you know you have to be frightened about it it's something to be careful about you know be so measured about your approach with you know being anywhere around potentially boys who may be able to get you pregnant so you know it is one of those things that I think you know as part of being a nutritional therapist you have to work through in terms of that emotional kind of uh, response to um, having fertility issues with them giving up that kind of notion that actually they're always going to be fertile and as soon as they decide to have children they can actually get that going straight away and everything will be rosy they'll you know move in with the partners start to go down the route of trying if they're a heterosexual couple and then sort of move into having a baby and having the 2.4 children kind of approach so it is incredibly difficult for a lot of the people and there's often a lot of anguish and despair and worry and all of these kind of emotions which are never really dealt with through that whole process of them having fertility issues, even all the way up to IVF, um, because no one says to them, you know, actually you were sold a bit of a lie in terms of the fact that fertility is something that happens very easily um, in terms of your own fertility and that that is going to happen quite easily because, you know, it's something like 400 billion or trillion to one that we're actually sat in, sat here as adults actually yes. having a conversation so it's very very difficult to actually get that sperm and egg meat situation to work it's all about timing and it's about possibly if there are any underlying issues with people and I remember the first time I learned that in your menstrual cycle there's only like a tiny tiny window where you can actually get pregnant yeah. like a, it's like it's, it's that five day kind of window um 20 mm. of your cycle or something that you can actually yeah. get pregnant I remember the first time I learned that I was like whoa it kind of blew my mind because like you mm. said when we're young we're led to believe probably rightfully so by our parents you know they're just kind of like mm. don't don't get up to funny business because <laughs> you could get pregnant because you know absolutely your parent I can imagine parents wanting to instill that in their children from mm. um from a young age just to kind of make sure that they're careful but um 
we are led to believe that it can happen anytime and then it'll be easy. Um, and none of us really expect it to be hard. And mm. I think that's the, that's the anguish part where it's like, I didn't know this would happen to me. Why is yeah. this happening to me? And actually, this is one of the questions I had for you because it's all good and well, you know, helping someone to lose weight or helping someone to balance their hormones. But when it comes to fertility, the emotions that come into your office must mm. be turned up really high and they're tough they're tough emotions like people are relying on you to you know provide quite an important part of their life so mm. how is that for you well I think we're not really trained as nutritionists and you know people providing integrative medicine sort of response to fertility approach to um you know functional medicine and all those things the emotional side of things is something that you learn as part of coaching to support people as part of that because you can't just say here's a diet here's some supplements off you go jobs are good and really on that situation because there is a big kind of part of what you do there's three elements to it there's diet and supplements there's lifestyle and there's the emotional side of things if you don't deal with one third of that then the kind of approach to positive hopeful feelings that they are going to get pregnant and having that kind of more proactive view is very difficult and also having that cushion if things go wrong that actually it's easy for them to pull themselves back up and actually get on with the next stage of that so you know from the emotional point of view it is you know something that you definitely have to do extra training in and you need more support and you have to have that as part of your arsenal and support system as a nutritionist for enabling that side of the equation to kind of almost release the doors. Because if you have that kind of very difficult situation where it hasn't worked, they may have gone through IVF and that's resulted in, you know, a poor uh, result with the whole process or there's been miscarriage, that kind of it's like a scar tissue that starts building up and building up and it becomes, you know, almost scars upon their heart, really, that that can be very difficult for them to release that positivity, that hope that something positive will come out of that. And I suppose for yourself as well, you know, learning to release it from yourself as well, because there's a lot of there's a lot of intense emotions around you. Mm. So I can imagine you've got to learn yourself to kind of go home and kind of shed it off and kind of carry on, um, especially if you know something hasn't worked for a client or um, yeah, absolutely challenging. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, definitely. Like I guess IVF clinics, they constantly have to deal with disappointment if things don't work according to plan and I guess if they took everything on board it becomes very raw doesn't it and it becomes difficult for them to do their job in terms of what they've got to deliver i.e the drug protocol the process of communication and how that works and then the end result so you do have to but there are times obviously when you know I'm dealing with people who've had you know five I had a client in particular about a year and a half ago two years who'd had I think she'd had 10 miscarriages um, and she was working through Tommy's, the um, the uh, association, the charity that works with multiple miscarriage and all sorts of things in relation to that um, in terms of looking at the immune system and how that might have actually heightened the response there for miscarriage and taking that through. So 
you know, it's it's difficult. And the interesting thing was she didn't deal with the emotional side of things. I said to her, look, we really need to work with this. And I've got loads of people I can refer you on to. And she said, my therapy is understanding the process from a scientific point of view and bringing people like you on board who can help me and work through that. So it's really interesting. Every single case, Tamara, is completely different in terms of how you work with them. And you have to, at the end of the day, work through how they want to work and give them gentle support. You can't push them into a box and say, look, you have to start believing this in the way that I do because they've lived through their own life experiences and they've dealt with their trauma in the way that they know best to deal with it. So as a professional, it's very useful to kind of have a proactive kind of approach to that, but also be empathetic. You've got to have a real kind of balance between the two. And it's not for everyone working as a nutritional um, therapist that specialises in fertility and pregnancy because you will have to deal with the emotional side of things, loss, miscarriage. And I am train a lot of nutritionists as well. And they come to me saying it's my first miscarriage client. I'm absolutely gutted for her. It's awful. I feel so dreadful. And it's almost like the longer you go on with that, the more proactive you are and the more you can kind of take the emotions out of the situation and give them some practical support to help them through that. I mean, it sounds a terrible thing to say. You do get more, um, you know, sort of uh, you deal with it in a different way, I think, than the first or second time that happens. But there are definitely situations where you do get clients and some of them have had, you know, an incredibly harrowing journey to get a baby. And, you know, that client in particular, luckily, she had a little girl um, about sort of eight months ago now. And um, she was on such a strong regime of things. And we worked together with the you know, the the gut, basically the gastrointestinal tract there, there were some issues there in terms of, you know, what was happening in her gut and some dysbiosis there and some parasites. And she also had, you know, a really interesting um, general makeup in terms of a vaginal microbiome and a, her reproductive microbiome when she went for some um, biopsies of some of the material in the uterus as well. So, it's just incredible how the body will stop something happening if there is a situation where it's not going to be productive for a baby to grow in that situation. Um, you know, essentially, the body will, will look at survival and inflammation first over reproduction. Um, and it can stop that happening, you know, from a very early stage in the cycle to almost miscarriage level, at very early stages in miscarriage. Um, you know, it's it's interesting what happens and working through clients who do have that situation trying to pinpoint it is literally like looking for a needle in a haystack sometimes and that's a really interesting point that you just said um how the body will um, only let a you know a child come to term if it's actually healthy enough to do it and I think mm. that's the hard part for people to accept it's like um you know they they feel like why can't this happen for me why can't this happen but then realizing that your body is making the correct decision um with the mm. circumstances and to just trust yeah. that it knows what it's doing um that mm. will you know that it, it's it's hard to accept but it's the truth like you said mm. um but you said earlier that you know there are three parts there's like food lifestyle and emotion so mm. you are you are the fertility nutritionist so for mm. for people who haven't really come to haven't really seen how food lifestyle can affect like your fertility because some people probably think all oh, these things just happen maybe it's genetic um, there's nothing I can do about it just give me some mm. hormones and I'll crack on 
Um, how important is food and lifestyle to fertility? Well, I guess you've raised a really interesting point there. You know, 30, 40 years ago, we were thinking genes were the only way forward. And if you have bad genes, that's just a given, really. But we now know that the environment is what triggers those genes into action. So if you have poor lifestyle, if you have, you know, if you're living in a very, you know, unhealthy environment, if you are somewhere that's living in a very polluted place, you know, I'm just thinking about the recent um, chemical spill in Ohio in the US at the moment, and how that actually is having an effect on the ground um, water, it's seeping into rivers that go all the way through about sort of five or six states in America. And you can see the effect that's having on smaller mammals there and sort of fish and things like that. And you know, that's toxic, it's going into the air, it's causing all sorts of problems with people I'm seeing on the news. So we can see that, you know, genetics will play a good part in that, obviously, in terms of how they can detox that. Mm -hmm. But if they are layering more and more things on top of that, like their lifestyle isn't particularly great to begin with, um, they're not moving their body enough, they're not eating the right things that are helping to support that whole uh, system there to make them a little bit healthier then definitely some of these things can trigger those genes into action and can sort of change things and make it more difficult, really. Um, so definitely lifestyle does play a huge part. I would say it was one of the most important parts of that puzzle. I wouldn't say genetics is the be-all and end-all. You can have a really crappy set of genes, but if you work around that with you know, increasing the possibility of making your lifestyle a little bit healthier with specific um, nutrients and working through detox and helping your body to improve that situation, you're making those genes a little bit more silent. You're not triggering them into action. Um, and I think that's the most important thing to look at because, you know, we have got these genes sometimes and, you know, our genes are an example of us moving through different generations, surviving in situations where there's famine, where there's disease, where there's you know, toxic chemical spills. And we can see that presented in the way some of the genes are actually changed in coming um, generations based around that. So we do have a mechanism for the cleverness of the body to actually change that based on what's happening in that generation. But what we can do to improve on that, and we now know based on the Human Genome Project and things um, being mapped, you know, 20 years ago in that situation, that we can actually change that by looking at, you know, how we live our lives, really. Such a good point. And as nutritional therapists, functional medicine practitioners, um, that, that's what we, we've we learned. And that's what we know that, you know, mm. you're, you can have the genes, but the environment pulls the trigger. And yeah. that was just beautifully said, um, that how, how that actually, how that can come into fruition, how people can actually have more control than they think. Um mm. And that's part of what we do, like help to empower people to get healthy and get well and know that they have more control over it than, you know, than they first thought. Mm. How how prevalent is infertility uh, these days? How prevalent is it? Well, it's actually a lot more prevalent than it used to be. Even 15 years ago when I started working in this area, it was kind of one in eight, one in ten. Um, you know, way back in 2008, when I first qualified, it's now one in six. Um, so it is becoming, as I guess cancer was many years ago, 20 years ago, in terms of the, the possibility. So 
what's not happening at the same time tomorrow is the taboo is not catching up with that. So people still hide their fertility journey from people. They still don't talk about it openly because there's still very much views and opinions that are given to people based around that often well thinking and you know well meant and you know through an air of kindness there but sometimes because that whole emotional piece from being told you know which we still have in schools that you can get pregnant really easily it doesn't catch up to the fact that when you're trying in your 30s and late 30s but actually in most cases if people aren't approaching this as if they were a project manager in terms of their life, their lifestyle, their health, looking at their genes and how they can actually improve the way their hormones are working. It does generally become one of those situations where they can add to that statistics themselves. And um, I, I've learned in, in my 30s, I've learned to not ask women Oh, are you having kids soon? Are you not planning to mm. have kids? I, in my twenties, yes, I was, you know, yeah. ignorant and didn't know what I was talking about. But now in my thirties, I'm like, don't ask someone that. Like, just yeah, you know, that they they could have any reason. Just don't go there um, mm. if you don't know much about them. Um, I I just I have my own story to share um, that I wanted to talk about I think it's very relevant for this conversation mm-hmm. and and it kind of leads on to what we were talking about before um, we recorded this um, about fasting so mm-hmm. um, like I said to you um, I specialize in fasting and helping women get in shape through fasting but um, mm-hmm. as we discussed before this um, fasting is a no-go if you're mm-hmm. looking to conceive um, or if you're pregnant or, you know, breastfeeding or anything like that. So um, my personal story is um, I actually lived through the actual reason why you shouldn't be fasting when you're trying to conceive. I have actually mm. lived it. So that's why I'm very precious with the women who are doing my programs. Mm. Um, I, when I was trying to conceive my son, um, it was two years it took me two years to do it and I know looking back that's probably not too bad um, compared Mm. to some other women but two years and it was fairly harrowing I mean for my Mm. first child it took me three months and Mm. um, so I just didn't expect to have um, it take so long with my second and I Mm. had three miscarriages as well during that time and um, and I was like what is going on like I was healthy so like typical I was like, I'm exercising, you know, I'm got a healthy diet, you know, I'm fasting and I'm doing all this stuff. And mm. I was like, why? I feel better than ever. Why am mm. I not conceiving? And I, I just didn't know. And this was back in 2019. Um, so I went to a dietitian and um, a doctor and they both basically said the same thing. They were like, okay, tell me about a bit about your lifestyle. Tell me a little bit about what you eat and blah, blah. And I was just like, well, I fast occasionally. Like, is that is that a problem? And they're like, yeah, that that's a problem mm-hmm. because if you fast too much and you're exercising, um, you're just putting your body through so much stress. Um, I was also mm-hmm. very slim um, because I was just not eating enough calories because I was just taking mm-hmm. it to the next level. So, you know, having the not enough calories and just all the exercise and my body was just like, hang on, this is not a safe environment to bring a child into. Like there's mm. not enough food, there's not enough energy to go around. So yeah, um, that was basically, I didn't have any tests done or any, you know, hormone panels done or anything, but 
um, they basically said, stop fasting. <laughs> Here are some progesterone tablets. And I literally put on a few kilos, took the tablets and I conceived like literally the next month. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that that's my um, story. And I, mm. I really want you to talk about fasting a little bit because I, mm. I love fasting, but not for women who are trying to conceive. So can you just explain yeah. why it's not a good thing? Well, I mean, fasting is great. I'm I'm definitely interested in that. And I do sometimes, if I have a client over the age of 40 that's gone through fertility issues and there hasn't been some success, there are some very small studies that look at it actually improving egg quality. Um, so there's some statistics that look at longer term, sort of shorter term sort of fasting um, and how that actually can kickstart um, that whole process where there's, you know, uh, sort of detoxing, getting rid of some of those um, situations where the body may be holding on to more uh, things that need to be got rid of. And I think, you know, it can be useful in those stages. And when I've worked with people who are going for IVF in their 40s, you know, mid 40s, and they're saying, look, it's my last chance. I know this is kind of you know, last chance corral in that situation, but what can I do? And when I've done that with people who've gone through maybe one or two rounds before working with me and then we do the fasting, it can um, really improve that situation and make um, that whole process better. But I think you've got to be careful and exactly what you're describing there, uh, Tamara, is what can actually lead to a condition called hypothalamic amenorrhea, which means that your body from the pituitary, the main centre that kind of commands when the orchestra of hormones start working to build follicles and then the eggs and have everything starts from there, will send a signal to say you're, you know, in famine effectively. So therefore we're holding on to food, reproduction's not going to happen there. And you see that when you do blood tests, you can see examples of that happening in some of the hormones, very low levels of FSH and LH, estradiol, maybe a little bit on the low side. Um, but you can see some hope there in terms of the DHEA being higher because that is the, you know, one of those uh, hormones that can actually indicate what your um, egg reserve might be potentially. Um, so it's useful, I think, for certain circumstances, but I would never say, you know, as part of a general approach that fasting is something I would recommend unless somebody... Um, you know, really wants to maximise their potential, really, if they're a little bit on the older side. And again, not doing that on your own, doing that clearly with somebody who understands that process, who under understands what your body's going to go through and how to actually help you through different stages of doing maybe a seven or a 10 day fast there. Um, you know, and whether it's something that is applicable for you, if you've got low blood sugar, probably not even in your 40s is a good idea to do that. Often when people are in their 40s, they're perimenopausal, so their blood sugar is a little bit higher. So again, that might be why fasting when you're a little bit older um, may work a little bit if you are just doing it on a short-term basis. Um, basically what it does on a short-term basis when you're older is it just gets rid of all the, the dead material. Um, you know, cellular renewal, we, we're kind of getting rid of some old things and starting from scratch. So it does help from that instance. But when you're actually younger, I think there are better ways to do that preconception approach by looking at your hormones, 
looking at, you know, if you've got any diagnosis of any particular fertility challenges there, you know, working through what's happening in regards to your microbiome, um, you know, because fasting generally does have a really, really interesting effect on the microbiome as well, um, you know, which is obviously orchestrating a lot of how our health is in the body. Um, so, yeah, fasting is good for certain circumstances, but I think preconceptionally, I'm not going to rule it out completely, but if you are kind of pushing that kind of approach, usually in my experience, it's type A women that will literally go for it, hell for leather. They'll put the calorie count on. They'll start doing five to six times, you know, CrossFit or spinning or whatever a, a week. And they also, you know, do this very strict sort of eating regime in terms of when they can eat and when they can't, you know, in terms of that, or they may fast completely by going on a water fast or something like that. So, you know, if we think about it, it's putting your body under a tremendous amount of stress because it's used to having three meals a day. Um, it does have a benefit for not having anything if you've got some issues with your microbiome and maybe some of the uh, the gut response there for having less material going through that for a shorter period of time to help it heal. But it's all very much a case-by-case situation tomorrow and I think generally preconception it's about nourishing the body and enabling it to get to that point where it literally says right let's all pull all the shutters up we're ready to have a baby now whereas the shutters go down effectively when you're fasting because the body sends that signal you're in famine really. Um, I like to say that fasting is a really fabulous tool when you need it but then yeah. when it's done it's just put that tool down just put it yeah. down like and then bring mm. it back out when you need it again like it's it's a fabulous tool but mm. use it wisely um it's, it's yeah. what I usually tell my ladies but so when it comes to the menstrual cycle um I remember when I was going through what I was going through my menstrual cycle was about oh gosh it was about 34 to 38 days long and mm. um, I was looking online I was like low progesterone symptoms low estrogen mm. symptoms high progesterone high estrogen and mm. I couldn't find direct answers as to what was going on and no. it was so difficult to, to to try and diagnose myself so when it comes to the menstrual cycle are there any um, key things to look out for for a woman to see okay maybe you should get some help or maybe this is happening with your body are there any like things that women should be absolutely so key things are having a regular menstrual cycle so anything up to sort of 33 34 days can be normal for most women um it isn't textbook everybody's got a different kind of monthly situation in terms of their cycle length um but also when it comes to looking at your cycle and dividing it into those bits that you need to know there's quite a lot of people out there that look at um the specific hormones that are going through your body at certain points in that cycle so early on, it's very much the kind of the build up phase. And then it's obviously the settling down, the proliferation stage after you ovulate. And that can indicate, um, you know, how you actually put your energy into things. So when you're building up towards ovulation after your period, your energy levels do increase. And then after you ovulate, you're in that nurturing and nourishing position where progesterone is more prevalent. And it's about, you know, working through that yourself and understanding that you may want to do things differently in terms of social events and 
using your brain and applying things because in the luteal phase after ovulation, your brain is more progesterone focused dominant in that area. And it isn't necessarily as kind of on form really as it is when FSH and estradiol and LH is kind of in play. Um, and I think when we're looking at the overall cycle, going back to what to look for for healthy things, you know, having a healthy bleed is important. So if you have a period that starts off and there's a lot of brown in there, it's very stringy, there's a lot of clots, generally that can be a sign of, you know, sluggish um, sort of tone in the uterus. It can also be a sign potentially that um, there's, uh, you know, issues with lymphatic drainage potentially there. Um, so there could also be off. issues with Sorry, what did you yeah, say? Sorry to cut you off, only just because mm. I, I just don't want to forget this part. But when you mentioned brown, um, I read in a book what that meant. It just meant that it was oxidized, meaning that it's been mm. sitting around for too long inside the womb. Is that correct? It can be, but also it can be leftovers from the last yeah. period that isn't That's kind it. of pulled yeah. through effectively and then immediately got rid of. So what we're looking for in in a good menstrual bleed is a very sort of bright, frank colour. Um, almost like you've cut your finger and I often say this with my clients we're on period homework we're looking at reporting back and telling me what <laughs> that looks like every month and does it pull at the bottom of the toilet you know or is it like when you go to the toilet it's like cutting your finger and dropping it in there that's a good sign if it is more like that and there's less clots in there and it starts off immediately red and you have maybe a couple of heavy days and then maybe some lighter days. So we want to look for a minimum of three days of, of bleed there and maybe an extra day where it tails off a little. But, um, you know, what we're looking for generally is, you know, low clots and stringy material in that period to make sure that we can see an indication of healthy muscle tone in the uterus there. And also, you know, whether the circulation is good, because it may be that they have poor circulation as well and there's some you know very sort of heavy periods but it's very gloopy and very syrupy the blood so again it can show that there may be some you know some issues with uh, muscle tone there as well and also in terms of Chinese medicine and people who work on the fertility massage side of things they often touch the belly to see if it's warm um, and if it's cold then that can also be an indication that the circulation in that area isn't necessarily that great. So interesting. And would that be linked to um, PMS as well? Do you look at PMS, um, the worse the PMS, then the worse the hormones? Yeah, I mean, that's more kind of relating to the, the half of the cycle called the luteal phase after you ovulate. And it's how well the first half goes it's a bit like football you can generally if you build it all up in the first half it can be better in the second half because you've actually got a few goals in there so if things are really healthy it's an indication of the month before and how well things have been approached if your bleed is good and you feel very energized towards your ovulation and you're getting also a lot of cervical fluid as well which is coming out or cervical mucus as some people call it which is something as you grow up that you're completely unaware of you think what's that jelly-like substance in my pants you know what is it and actually that's a sign that estrogen levels are rising and an indication you know very much part of our grandmothers and great-grandmothers era where they would have passed that information about it being the right time to try for a baby um 
So those levels of clear kind of cervical mucus or fluid that you can stretch between your fingers between sort of day 10 and maybe day 16 or 17, depending on when you ovulate, are also a sign that you are heading towards that ovulation period. Um, but PMS, once you've ovulated, it's how well that um, progesterone level is maintaining in that half of your cycle. Um, and if it starts off and you've only got seven days of that good level and it starts to drop, that's when you start to feel maybe that PMS is dominating that part before you start your period. It's never after the period. You often feel really grumpy just before your period starts. And then it's a revelation always when the period starts, you feel all right. And you go, of course, every month it's like that. You're like, there is nothing wrong. No, absolutely. Oh. That person's chewing was not that annoying. It was just that period one or two days before that, that feel good progesterone. And that's the hormone that dominates in um, together with estrogen in pregnancy, which is why women tend to feel quite good in pregnancy mm. um, and tend to keep wanting to have babies because progesterone is really strong. And it's that hormone when it drops, you know, that level of, you know, wow, it's dropping. I want to hold on to that feeling when the PMS starts to come in a bit more. So we're also looking at things towards the end of the cycle there. Things like spotting can indicate that the progesterone is dropping too quickly and any spotting before a period starts is really interesting in terms of how your cycle is maybe not as healthy as it could be. And also mid spotting as well in the cycle. Spotting at any point in the cycle can be an indication that you maybe need to go and speak to your doctor and get some tests done. You know, get some um, early day three tests to look at the main follicular hormones and then looking at doing a progesterone test to see what your progesterone is seven days after you ovulate. The sad thing is, Tamara, most people have such a you know short or long cycle, they call it the day 21 test for progesterone. And it isn't always on day 21 that there's the best time to do that. That would only be if you had a 28-day cycle and that would be seven days after ovulate, if you ovulated on day 14. So that's why I use things like um basal body temperature testing to look at your cycle i use you know ovisense which is a really great fertility monitor to help me to understand and the client as well what's happening in their cycle and we can use things like this to really gauge when that day 21 test is because it will be seven days after your um your ovulation but it's not just that you know that's just one test that can tell you what's happening at day seven when you look at something like BBT monitoring, basal body temperature monitoring and ovisense, if that drops like a, you know, steadily from day seven and you've only got seven days of decent progesterone in that luteal phase, you know that generally that's not the healthiest for sustaining a pregnancy as well. And you mentioned yourself getting on progesterone tablets. Mm. That is one way of boosting that situation. But I think, you know, as I'm a, functional nutritionist I like to see before I start popping hormones in for your body to rely on something synthetic to go forward that actually it is down to you know progesterone that's just the the, the actual realization of what's happening in the body it could be a root cause of something else like stress it could be some inflammation in the body as to why at that point the progesterone is leaving the building um so it's always useful to work with a 
specialist with fertility that understands the cycle and tries to help you to educate yourself through that whole approach um, rather than trying to do this on your own. And this is what makes me laugh, really, with a lot of my clients. They, they kind of circle me for about four years, gaining lots of information from the Instagram account, then going, oh, well, I've done all these mushrooms that you've given me, Angela, you talked about on Instagram. I have used this supplement that you talked about and I've done a test and, you know, it, it's so much easier to go and get a nutritional therapist to help you through that, you know, because if your washing machine broke down, you wouldn't go on Google, on in YouTube and start trying to work out how to work that. But I think it's such a taboo that women feel so embarrassed that they can't do this themselves because that's what society's geared them up to do. They spend hours on Google, Dr. Google, trying to work through what's going on with them, when actually the best thing to do is always just speak to a specialist um, who works in fertility and can understand and educate them around where there may be some, some issues in the body that actually need some further investigation. But also for a lot of women, I think they don't know when it's when they should go and see someone because I remember mm. when I was going through, I was going through, I didn't see any professionals for uh, over a year after mm. you know, I could um, conceive because apparently um, online they say if you haven't conceived for a year, then mm. you should go and see someone. But then yeah. even then, um, each month I, I had this fresh optimism every month and I was like, oh, yeah, like this sure. time. and before you know it, two years has passed and you're just like, true, yeah. this, this hasn't happened in two years. And, yeah. and you just, you, for me, I just didn't know that I needed the help. I was just, yeah, I just thought that's we were unlucky. Thing, yeah. yeah. But I think it's really rooted in that social taboo of the fact that you're a woman, you should be able to do this. If you can't, you know, the shame is, is kind of very subliminal. Um, and I think in other circumstances, women are much better, like, for instance, for asking for directions if they get lost, going, let's bring Task Rabbit in to do something because I can't put the shelves together. I can't cook this, so I'm going to get a takeaway. I think there's definitely instances where women go, yeah, let's cut out the middleman or woman. Let's go straight to do this with somebody else's professional situation. I think is definitely rooted in that. And I feel really sad about that situation because... You know, in most circumstances, um, you know, people will go to professionals to ask their help um, because they just say, I haven't got time for this. I haven't got time for a year or two to pass um, because fertility generally does go down, you know, from periods of maybe sort of 39 to 43. You've got, you know, where things drop a little. And then in your, your sort of mid thirty uh, 40s, all the way up to 45 it drops drastically you know and I think because we're sitting on that oh I just need another month maybe it'll happen now we exactly. lose time yeah you know that's exactly the mind come frame. To me that are yeah. so kind of ah oh, I haven't got time for this Angela I haven't got three months to work together and I just say well this is how we have to do it because yeah. we don't know what we don't know at the moment we need to work through what is actually causing this inflammation that is maybe upsetting your cycle and you have some um some low levels of of hormones that can be explained with um you know oxidative stress in the body really you hit the nail right on the head i think um the time issue as well is women mm. are in like couples are in such a rush 
to to do it to, to conceive yeah and it's almost like going to professional almost slows everything down because what if this person tells me I can't I can't conceive for another six months because mm. you've got to go through this special yeah. program and like I yeah. think that's that's that can be scary for people so yeah. if, if if someone was listening right now and they're taking some time to conceive and they're not sure whether um, they should go and see someone so just say they think okay maybe I should go and see someone uh, what are some um, main things that someone could do today that could help their fertility, like food wise and lifestyle wise? I know this is a big question, but are there any? Yeah, um, sure, key sure. Things? I mean, doing a food diary yourself, because we are completely unaware what's going in our mouth sometimes when we're watching the TV, <laughs> how many times a week we're having alcohol, how much protein we're having how many starchy processed carbs we're having a week. So I think just going through a diary for a week, including the weekends, because sometimes that's a different approach to food, and just then looking at, you know, putting it into a program um, that actually assesses the amount of carbohydrates and the amount of proteins generally can give you more of an idea of the amount of vegetables you're having on a daily basis when you think you're super healthy. I've lost count of the amount of people that say we're really healthy. We have three vegetables in our evening meal. I have a sandwich for lunch and I have Weetabix for, for breakfast, you know, and it's that's the approach where they think that's healthy because, you know, big food industry has kind of pushed out these kind of cereal-based approaches like and, start. you know, wheat-based sandwiches that have a few vegetables in them that actually what they're doing is being healthy when actually what we need to do is really break that down by them looking at the amount of macros in their diet, the fat, the carbohydrates and, and the protein levels and the amount of vegetables they're having on a daily basis, particularly with women, which are terrible for not having enough protein, which again are the building blocks of building new life, you know, and repairing the body. So those are the things I would say basically start at the 10. And then looking at the lifestyle, looking at you know, things that they put on the body, you know, other things that they use chemicals wise, you know, how toxic is their beauty regime, um, looking at the air in their, um, their house, you know, did they use an air filter? Are there, you know, toxins in the house that may be causing inflammation, there may be mold or damp in the environment, which the body is breathing in, and it's creating mycotoxins, which can be very, very toxic for the body and the immune system to get rid of. So, there's lots of things I go through, really, as a functional nutritionist in my first consultation that assesses their lifestyle and their diet and their emotional kind of approach to things mm -hmm. and their motivation as well going forward for changing some of these things. Because there's no point you going in there being, you know, very sort of, well, let's cut all these things out and then saying, well, I'm not really prepared to do that. So you've got to kind of assess what their level of motivation is in terms of changing the lifestyle right from that first conversation that you have. Um, so hopefully these are some of the things that you can do and get them to do, you know, a, a basic hormonal test, um, you know, at the early start of their cycle on day two or three, I'm getting them maybe to do a progesterone test. But again, these are some of the things that can, if you don't have that assessment from that, can actually be quite detrimental to their emotional approach to this because if they get something themselves that then doesn't have a professional to talk them through it 
they can often then go down a deep black hole in terms of, well, I'm never going to get pregnant. Look at these levels. Everything's out of balance. You know, Dr. Google's useful, I think, but it can be quite difficult when you're looking at things you can do yourself. So I would always say, start that conversation with your doctor if you've been trying for a year and, you know, it hasn't happened. Even sooner, if you're over the age of 39, I would say six months, um, go up to the doctor's have a chat with them and say, can I have some blood tests to assess my fertility, possibly even get a scan on day maybe nine or 10 of your cycle to see what's happening with your follicles, um, see whether you're producing enough, look at your womb lining, see if there's anything there that might be obstructing something. Like, for example, endometriosis, you can do MRI scans now if you've got families um, issues with that. You can also do um, you know, a basic scan to assess what's happening with your level of follicles on your ovaries as well and look at the womb lining as well to see health of that so these are all things you can kind of do through your doctor or you can go private you can all arrange a scan privately um luckily in this country we can do walk-in scans there and that can give you more information to then go and see a nutritionist who specializes in fertility have this information to hand and then you're taking control of what's happening in your life and you're not just saying well every month it's not happening and I don't know why and then going down a deep hole and sort of worrying about it and letting you know your intuition kind of go off in millions of different places of maybe I've got this disease or I don't know what's happening as it generally does in most women being a woman myself I can obviously you know account for that myself you know when something's not working you literally go round and round the houses in terms of why. And it's always good to then, you know, take control back by doing something, you know, and approaching it in, for example, you would do planning a wedding or planning a marathon or all these things that take time mm. um, to get to that level with, with an understanding of it. And I always say this, people plan their wedding more than they do the fertility and, you know, working up to a marathon these are two things that they generally do and maybe MOTing the car and looking after that. Um, and I think it's generally psychologically because we're told that if it, you know, if we try for a baby, it's going to happen immediately. And if it doesn't, I think that shame can be quite difficult for people to deal with. And it takes them a long time to get back into, okay, I need to reach out for some help here. I need to admit this isn't happening. And once I do that, the doors open and there's a whole load of professionals that can help you on that side. And it is a lot more common than we're led to believe, you know, one in six, one in eight couples is a really, really high amount yeah. of something in terms of, you know, it being an issue. And I think it really needs to push up the agenda in schools now to try and let, you know, young women, young men actually understand that this is something, you know, cantering up on the horizon that we need to be aware of. I think that's so important, like everything you've just said. And I really love your approach when you say, you know, it's if you're training for a marathon or planning a wedding, it, you'd have a team of people helping you. Mm. And um, because going through this can be really lonely, like when you're sitting yeah. alone and you've just had a negative pregnancy test again, and that mm. overwhelming sadness, you're just like, I have to wait another month and like what's happening and just like yeah. check, looking at things on Google and it can be so lonely and it can be so devastating. Um, but it's, it's really interesting because you said you were mentioning um, food, which which I get, you know, the vegetables, the protein, which is really important, building blocks of life, fats, carbs. But then when you go on to like skin creams and the mm. lifestyle, like the mold in the home, 
I can imagine people thinking, okay, how does that affect me though? <laughs> so mm. is there any way, because recently you've been talking about something incredible on Instagram, which I'm I'm so interested in. And actually I want to talk to a mold specialist at some point on this podcast, mm. because I'm so interested. Um, how does lifestyle factors like that external affect your fertility? So even just looking at mold, for example, mm. how can mold in the home cause infertility? Like how? Well, I mean, one of the most important things to think of when we think of mould is it's older than time. You know, the whole kind of use of mould, its sole purpose is to degenerate something down, you know, so that it can survive. You know, it's it will go into something that is a living material, including wallpaper, paper, carpets, you know, any kind of surfaces that have water on it, which is a medium for it to grow and damp in most environments which are humid um, and then cold and damp and grow that situation. So from a human perspective, that place where it grows the best is the nasal cavity and the lungs, a very, very important place for growing that because it's almost like an ecosystem inside the lungs and, and the nose. It's the right temperature and that's where you breathe in mold spores and they become, you know, more toxic, you know, 20 times more toxic with mycotoxins that then become um, the purpose of them is to obviously to try and, you know, survive and, to you know, to degenerate the organism they're in. So, you know, mold generally in the house, if we think about back to Victorian era and all those kind of damp environments where there was no heating and people lived in those places there was a lot of obviously disease spread and a lot of respiratory issues that children died of and we've got that um more recent thing in the UK where that little boy that two-year-old little boy died from a very very sort of mold infested house um you know showed pictures of it and the younger you are and the nearer you are to the mold on that level really the more potentially you can be breathing in those mold spores and that's why his parents were able to kind of manage that themselves but him as a little boy um you know very difficult I read the interview with his mum and it sounds like his mum actually had issues with mold even before she had the baby because I think she had to deliver him a little bit early so again it can have implications in terms of you know preterm babies and obviously then the lungs if they're going back to the house and it's new lungs kind of breathing those things in it is something that I'm so glad is now up on the agenda. It's a really horrible situation that, mm. you know, a little boy had to die in this uh, these circumstances. But people generally are kind of mould deniers. You know, mm. you talk to people generally, even members of my family have been like, oh, don't be silly. You know, it can't be that bad. It can get inside your brain. It can reduce down your mitochondrial ability to actually function, which is very important for egg health. Mm. Um, and one thing we didn't discuss earlier, I'm talking about all these tests for women, it affects sperm health as well. So there's quite a few studies um, looking at it. And the agri- agricultural business has known about mould and the contamination from feed and the environment for, you know, a hundred odd years in terms of the fact that if you give it to, pe- to animals to feed off that, that can result in miscarriages in, in cattle. Um, likewise for, you know, obviously the sperm and things like that so it does have a big big effect on effect on sperm as well and I think that's where 
testing, doing full tests for men as well um, in terms of sperm levels first and then looking at um, general blood tests for them as well to see if there is something that is affecting their immune system because effectively that's what's going to happen. It will kick the immune system into uh, a point where it's bringing out that natural killer cell approach because something is threatening the life of the organism. So that's when the body brings these things on and it can be, you know, quite sneaky in terms of the way it approaches things because it will attack the nucleus of the cell, it will attack the mitochondria, so it stops the body being able to regenerate itself and to support that. And you can see that with a lot of people that do have mold toxicity or mold illness. You know, it presents very much like long COVID or ME or, you know, severe sinuses or lack of energy, um, really bad kind of detoxability, um, you know, things like loss of hair, weight gain, it can mimic so many things, Tamara, that it's really difficult to kind of nail it down and go, oh, I can tell that's mold. Um, until you do something like a mycotoxins urine test, because the bladder is one of the areas where mold can actually be, you know, a receptacle for that. So when you pee out some mycotoxins and you test those, you can see from that if you are producing a lot of mycotoxins and, you know, kind of fermenting that in the bladder, really. And then what those species are as well, because then if you know what those species are, you can then approach things in a different way in terms of working through how to get that out of the body, really. I think um, the fact that you're talking about this and putting it out there is so, so important because if if there's somebody who thinks, well, I I'm, think I'm doing everything right, like I've gone to the doctor, mm. he can't figure out what's going on, um, I'm eating well, I'm staying healthy, I still don't know what's going on. It, mm. What what you're talking about here with mold is um, just another avenue. It opens another door of possibility. It's like, okay, so maybe you might want to look at this. Like just might, mm. maybe you want to have someone round to check out your home to see yeah. if there is any mold growth because you can't always see it and mm. you don't always know that it's there. So um, yeah. sometimes you need to have some, a professional to come and check it out. Um, yeah. And I think it's so important that you're kind of bringing this up because it's kind of opening another door for somebody to explore. Mm. Um, and also just lifestyle, like you said, things they're putting on their skin and, you know, maybe environmental toxins like the plastics and like you could really go down a, mm. a, a rabbit hole with the environmental toxins. But um, it's it's they people need to know about it because it's there mm. and it could yeah. be one of the reasons why you're having difficulty getting pregnant um I mean what I wanted to basically um I wanted to kind of do some quick fire questions just to kind mm. of um finish um so first of all what are your um thoughts on birth control pills well I mean they use them in IVF to control the cycle so they will put you on that if you're in a long protocol and then take you off it when they want to start the whole process. So from that perspective, they are quite useful for helping to control that. In terms of with, you know, the fertility perspective, I have a different view. I think sometimes using the pill has been used as a, a form of, you know, gaslighting in a way because it says it's liberated women to allow them to do these things but actually not understanding their cycle has stopped them having more control over how they actually work through life you know in terms of what I was talking about earlier the follicular phase 
you know, in terms of energy and what's happening in the luteal phase after progesterone hits is probably if we hadn't had the pill, we'd have got a lot more in modern society based around women in the workforce working around these things cycle wise. Um, I think it's useful for if you've got, um, you know, a particular condition that may mean you need to kind of stabilise things out from the brain to the ovaries. But it can also trigger a lot of people's diagnoses as well. So, for example, you may have pill-induced polycystic ovarian syndrome, which, you know, if you're on the pill for a period of time and it doesn't kind of send that signal backwards, um, that's how it works, really. So useful for some things, not necessarily great if you are on the fertility journey and you've been on it long term, really. Right. And just finally, how long do you think a woman should be um, spending kind of cleaning up their diet, cleaning up their lifestyle um, in preparation for conception? How long do you think it takes to get your body into good condition? Well, in terms of the information behind that, they say sort of 90 days for both sperm and egg health, because that's how long it takes for that cycle for sperm health to kind of develop. And also in terms of eggs being pulled into the primordial pool, really, to help grow that through the follicle and for that. So it's looking at, you know, emotional detoxing, kind of, you know, skincare and beauty products and what you're using on your skin, what you're breathing around your home and also what you're putting, what you're eating in your body. So all these things are very much a bespoke situation. You can have somebody working around that that can really help you if you have certain things that come up in some of these tests to then go in there with a more specific situation where you can get, you know, higher levels of energy if you work through certain mushrooms, medicinal mushrooms, or if you have certain immune conditions, we're working through reducing that inflammation to allow your body to then open the door to supporting further and more healthier fertility. All right. Um, this topic is so huge. I feel like this could be a two-hour conversation, three-hour conversation. Could. But uh, but I, what I want people to know is um, your your Instagram, because I'm always on Instagram and I see that you're on Instagram a lot as well. Um, what I want people to know is that the information on your page is so good. Um, you talk about medicinal mushrooms. You, you've been talking about them recently and how they're good for fertility. And that's just so, that's a great avenue to go down. You talk about mold, but then you talk about hormones and, and all the other, all the things that women need to know about fertility. So I just want to mm. urge people to kind of sort of follow you and to get clued up on um, fertility um, using the information that you put out there. So is there anything that you want to say um, just to kind of wrap up? Is there any final thoughts or? Um, well, I anything? always say what yeah. we've just talked about, uh, Tamara, is, you know, we need to do that preparation work. Like I said earlier, when you are getting married, you don't just go down the town hall, you know, set off and, you know, get your gear on and just go. You You have that preparation period. It's a long period in for that. So I think if you are you know, able to do that, I would say at least a three month preparation period, if not longer, to get your body into that fitter, kind of more healthier position is the best way to approach this and look at all of those things we've discussed um, in terms of cutting out some of those more toxic things. There's things you can't avoid, like the air we breathe and, you know, the way things happen in the environment that we have no control over. But there are some things you really have got control over that you can choose that help you to get into a much healthier state 
which you can see responses for when you're doing blood tests. You can see things improving and then also doing things like monitoring your cycle because timing is so important for trying for a baby and you completely could be getting it wrong and missing that window. So that's a really important thing, looking at understanding your cycle a bit more, looking at some of these fertility monitors that are quite useful um, to look at basal body temperature and trying to understand your cycle. And that will give you an insight into your body to help you, obviously, through those stages of trying for a baby. Love it. And how can people find you and get more information? So Instagram is where people mostly find me. I'm uh, at Fertility Nutritionist. Um, there's lots of information on there. And if you want to, obviously, look at my website, um, my clinic is um, www um our fertility nutritionist so if you look for that that's the way to contact me but you can obviously get in touch with me via instagram as well and um set up a session where i have a free 15 minute session where i go through options to work with people if they want to take things more to a bespoke level where it's more kind of tailored to your needs and not as opposed to you know wading through online and all the forums and all the things that are available that can actually be more relevant to that particular person and not relevant to you so bespoke I think is always the way forward because we're individuals and I think we often look at this group mentality of being this certain type through things like the human design or astrology and all sorts and actually we're an individual so it's about you know celebrating the fact that you are the most individual thing on earth there's never going to be anything like that again so again we need to look at a, a plan that works around that love that really great oh thank you so much for all of the information you've shared it's been so so valuable and I know it's going to help a lot of couples out there so I just want to thank you so much for your time and um, I hope we can do this again soon absolutely well thanks for bringing me on I really appreciate you and asking me all these questions it's really helpful to talk through these things because it does reach more people and I think that's the idea really isn't it I'm Tamara Walpole, and you've been listening to Your Body's Way. If you haven't already, please subscribe, share, rate, and review this podcast. You can find me on Instagram as Tamara Walpole Nutrition. Join me next time for some more juicy information on how to help you on your journey to your best self yet. Your Body's Way is the only way. Chat soon.